0: Well, good morning to you all. Once again, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41 as we continue our series through the life of Joseph, the purposes of God in the land of affliction. Now, we're not going to take the time this morning to read through Genesis chapter 41, being it's 57 verses. So, uh, I will explain the story um, as we go. And trust that maybe in some way this may be familiar to you. If, this, uh, if, if, you've, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible or you're not sure what's going on, don't worry. You don't have to have a familiarity with it in order to uh, come along with us. So, whether you know, know the story well or you don't. Uh, it'll be, I trust, uh, profitable for you to, to follow along with where we're going. So Genesis chapter 41. I want to ask you the question, what do you ancient, you don't, don't respond to this, of course, but uh, what do you ancient Egyptian magicians and present-day local malls have in common? And perhaps more than you think. As we come to Genesis chapter 41, We find that Joseph has gone from the favored child of Jacob to a hated younger brother by his ten older brothers to maliciously attacked and cold-heartedly sold to the Ishmaelite caravan. And so now Joseph is in Egypt. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that's to be the case. The Ishmaelite caravan takes Joseph to Egypt. They sell him to a man named Potiphar. And from there, Joseph experiences great prosperity and great blessing under God's favor, followed by probably the some of the lowest of lows, wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife of uh, seeking to attack her, and then wrongfully thrown in prison. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 41, Joseph in prison. But before before we get to this story, let's be reminded that the story of Joseph takes takes up chapters 37 through chapter 50 in the book of Genesis. And it's one long narrative, one long story culminating with One sovereign purpose of God, and we find that purpose in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, as he's interacting with his brothers, which will eventually happen, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is the same purpose that the psalmist picks up on in Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17, where it says, When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, what did God do? He he had already sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So Joseph is being used by God to ensure that the chosen people of God stay alive in order that the redemption found in Jesus Christ would not fail. So that's kind of the big story of why we have chapters 37 through 50. Yet in each of these, if I could call them sub-scenes, which is basically divided up by chapters, we find God's word has much to say about who God is and what kind of life God blesses. And the topic of Genesis chapter 41 is God's rescue of Joseph from the dungeon pit of prison. And uh, you're, you're familiar with this story. The Pharaoh has dreams and nobody can answer him. Eventually Joseph is called to the scene. And so God is beginning to work his rescue of Joseph from that prison and carry on his story. And as we'll see in the story, it's not just about God's rescue, it's actually about God's rescue set up against uh, fake rescuers, or false rescuers, that we'll see this morning. But here's something we can't miss in this passage, because as I was reading through this, I realized something, this passage from from verse 1 to the last verse covers a span of about nine years in Joseph's life. As a matter of fact, uh, in the, in the, you get through one-third one third of the way through verse 1, and you've already taken up two years right there. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, okay, so we've already got two years taken care of just in a third of a verse. And then in four verses at the end of the chapter, in verses 46, 47, 48, and 49, we get another seven years, just in those four verses. So two years in... Uh, in about a third of a verse, seven years in about four verses. The author spends the last eight verses talking about uh, the end of the prosperous years and the beginning of the famine years. So verses one to 45 elapse a time of about 24 hours, maybe a couple days. And while the whole passage is important, the author spends a great length talking about these 24 hours in verses one to 45. And it's in these verses 45 verses, we find the topic in the theme of Genesis chapter 41. God's rescue set against fake rescuers. Now, we've all grown accustomed to hearing the phrase fake news. It's a phrase that describes a news story or a news network that is untrustworthy, undependable, and at times completely untrue. Fake news is often painted and rightfully so as a danger to a free society. But I would argue that far more dangerous than fake news, fake rescuers. Fake rescuers as I define them are the untrustworthy, undependable and untrue saviors that often get our trust dependence in our hearts. They're the they're the they're the undependable untrustworthy untrue saviors that pull the needle of our heart away from true north the Lord Jesus and leave us vulnerable to all sorts of sins and transgressions. And when we look at Genesis chapter 41, we see that Joseph knew that his God was his true rescuer no matter what he faced and no matter what was brought up in the story. And he refused to let anything else get his trust, his dependence, or his heart. And so in a world of fake rescuers, God's rescue remains sure. And because God's rescue remains sure and steady and true and dependable and sufficient, there are three fake rescuers we must avoid. Three fake rescuers we must avoid. Number one is self now, where did I get this point? And here, I'm gonna, we're going to skip the first. We're not actually going to come back to them, but we're going to jump ahead to verses 15 and 16. So it, it, this, this is what Pharaoh says to Joseph. Verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. We'll come back to that, but let's talk about how we got here. Joseph has been in prison. We've stressed that already. And he's been in prison two years since last week when we talked about Joseph interpreting the dreams for the baker and the cupbearer. And he sits forgotten in prison, yet, this all changes when Pharaoh has a symbolic dream. And uh, the dream is, is found here uh, in the first several verses, and Pharaoh's going to repeat it again here in just a little bit. But basically the idea is seven, uh, seven ugly cows come out of the Nile and eat seven fat, healthy cows. And then he has another dream where seven thin and blighted ears of grain eat seven plump ears of grain. And Pharaoh has these dreams, and he rightly assumes that these dreams are in some way communicating that there's danger ahead, that there's some sort of traumatic event perhaps ahead, yet he cannot find a solid interpretation. And so he goes to his magicians and his wise men, and he tells them the dream, yet they couldn't give him a solid interpretation. And so Pharaoh sits And it says in verse 8, where it says, So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. That's the same way the cupbearer and the baker were described in Joseph's psalm. Except here, Pharaoh doesn't have anybody to come to his rescue. Now it's interesting, in verses 9 through 13, the cupbearer is actually kind of standing by listening to Pharaoh share his dreams. To these magicians and wise men. Now, if you want to know real quickly, the magicians and wise men would have been experts in the ritual books of priest magic, uh, and, and other sort of priest craft that they had. So they would have they would have known the books well. But the cupbearer hearing this suddenly his memory is suddenly jogged and he realizes, I know a guy. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. He says, I remember my transgressions. There was, I was in prison uh, along with the baker. We both had dreams and we, we, we brought it to Joseph, which actually isn't true because Joseph came to them, but whatever. Uh, he says, we had these dreams and we gave it to him. He gave us an interpretation and they both came true. And so Pharaoh calls this Hebrew prisoner, uh, look at verse 14. Verse 14. Uh, I love the phrase here. Then, Joseph, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. This immediately brought to mind Psalm 103, verses 1 and, uh, 1 and verse 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, who redeems your life from the pit. And we read in Psalm 113 earlier, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. I immediately thought that no matter how deep in the pit we go, God's love is deeper still. And God is behind this all. God gave the dreams. God brought the memory back for the cupbearer. And God is using Pharaoh to call his servant out of the pit. So, Joseph, uh, says in verse 14, gets a haircut, he gets a shave, and he changes clothes. So Joseph by now, get this, would have looked entirely, completely like an Egyptian, Egyptians were clean shaven. Hebrews were, they, they like their beards. And so Joseph, with his haircut, with the shave, with the clothes, you wouldn't have been able to tell him, I mean, hardly tell a difference between him and, well, I guess you wouldn't be able to recognize that he was a Hebrew. And so all of this, the dream, the memory of the cupbearer, all brings us to verse 15 and 16, where Pharaoh makes. A statement to Joseph. And at this moment, Joseph's faith is going to be tested. Now think about it. Joseph is just coming out of prison. And Pharaoh puts a lot of emphasis on Joseph. I have heard that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Like, so in, in Pharaoh's mind, Joseph is like potentially the greatest guy in the world. And so Pharaoh's putting a lot of emphasis on Joseph's ability. And right there, there's a danger. There's a danger for all of us when people start talking about how great we are. Pharaoh thinks very highly of Joseph. Now, Joseph could have just simply agreed, like perhaps you and I would do. And he could have said, Yep, I can do it, I'm your man. Just don't throw me back in prison. Whatever you need, I can do. I'm better than your magicians. I'll, I'll, you know, He can set himself up against the failure of the magicians. He could earn favor with Pharaoh. He could have just said, yep, I got it. What do you got? But instead, Joseph immediately and almost emphatically and maybe even rebukingly responds to Pharaoh. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh A favorable answer. Perhaps you're reminded of Daniel, who a thousand years after this, maybe even a guy who learned from Joseph, would respond to King Nebuchadnezzar in the exact same way. When King Nebuchadnezzar, again, a thousand years later, would say almost the exact same words to Daniel, here's how Daniel responds. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven Reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days. Joseph is not looking to rescue himself. Which, by the way, when we start buying into how great we are from other people, that's basically what we're doing. We are storing up self sufficiency, we are storing up self reliance, we are removing ourselves from the realm of God's rescue and putting it in our own hands. And Joseph is not looking to rescue himself, but continues entrusting himself to the true rescuer, Yahweh, his God. Now I want you to notice two things about some things that Joseph says here. And the first one is when he says God. Because the the Hebrew word is Elohim, which could just mean any God. As a matter of fact, in verse 38... Uh, if you look down to verse thirty-eight, when Pharaoh says, and Pharaoh said to his servants, "Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God?" It's that Elohim. It's it's kind of this general sort of any god idea. Pharaoh just thought some sort of god has his hand on this guy. But when Joseph uses the word God here, he doesn't use Elo- just use Elohim. He uses Ha Elohim, the God. The Egyptians were polytheistic they worshipped a multitude of gods more than that the Egyptians believed that the goddess Mayat worked her will through Pharaoh thus making Pharaoh a god and here Joseph is and at the time where his rescue perhaps hangs in the balance he tells he goes right up to Pharaoh and he says the God the one true God can give you an answer And so not only is Joseph not concerned about saving himself, he's concerned that Pharaoh knows his trust is in the God, the Elohim, the all-powerful one. It was spiritual preservation over self-preservation. But then I also want you to notice uh, in that same verse where he says, Joseph answered, it's not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That word favorable, it's the Hebrew word shalom, peace, peace. Joseph is telling Pharaoh that this all ends in Pharaoh having peace. Joseph has a God-centered, conviction-fueled optimism when talking to Pharaoh. And this is remarkable to me, considering he had just been in prison for at least two whole years, sitting as a forgotten nobody. And here he comes out, bursting out of prison, sitting for two years, completely forgotten about, And he comes out with this radical confidence in God. This radical, God-centered, conviction-fueled joy and optimism in the God. Now, I don't think he was flippant about his suffering. I don't think he's lessening his suffering. I don't think he didn't cry and mourn But for the follower of God, for the one who trusts in God through the Lord Jesus, in a single tear, there can be both sorrow and anguish and suffering, and yet joy and happiness in God. And that's what fueled the shalom. Now, what does this all mean for us? Again, Pharaoh thought Joseph was an expert in the science, of interpreting dreams. And Joseph says, "This isn't. it's not me, it's God. We must beware of those attitudes where we lay claim to self-sufficiency or others tell us to lay claim to self-sufficiency. Of course, we proudly would say that our sufficiency is in God through Christ. And we would even echo, with our mouths at least, in Christ we have been made complete, Colossians 2.10. We would claim that all truth and joy and happiness and hope and peace is found in Jesus. That he is our great rescuer. And it is great to affirm it. It's great to preach it. It's something quite different to live it. As great as it is to talk about the sufficiency of Christ, what really matters is is if we live in the sufficiency of Christ. And my fear is that we often fall into the lies of the culture Telling us to be sufficient in and of ourselves. Our culture, through its many venues, you pick a venue and it's telling you this. It tells us that we need to find our true selves. That there's a self inside of you that will rescue you from your cooped up, downtrodden, going nowhere self. And you need rescue. And the one way you find rescue, stay at home moms. And the one way you find rescue, dads and men who feel like they have a dead-end job. The one way you find rescue is to look deep inside yourself and find that person who's got it all together. Your joy and happiness and hope and peace is found in breaking down the walls of frustrating jail-like motherhood and breaking free from the boss at work, from having no bonds. You just got to find that person because that person's got what it takes to live The good life. Brothers and sisters, we have to abandon self-rescue. It's fake rescue. It's damning rescue. Jesus alone can save. Yet there's another fake rescuer out there. I referred to this a little bit at the end, and you'll see that all three of these tie together anyways. But the second one is culture. The second one is culture. Now where did I get this point? Again, I want to I want to jump to verse 8 and then look at verse 24, okay? Because now we're going to kind of zero in a little bit more on the magicians here. At the end of verse 8, uh, his, his, the morning, uh, his spirit, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. The one sure thing in Egyptian culture, failing. And then look over at Verse 24. Where he's now, so Pharaoh is now done relaying the dream to Joseph. And at the end of verse 24 it says, and I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. So Joseph, or so Pharaoh says, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. But notice the very next words out of Joseph's mouth in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So again, let's back up and see how we got there. Egyptian culture. What part do the magicians play here? Well, they're among the most esteemed in Egypt, supposedly having all the book knowledge and wisdom needed to master the science, if we could call it that, of dream interpretation. Yet the only thing we get from them in this passage is that they failed and they couldn't come up with an interpretation to Pharaoh's dream. And some commentators argue that perhaps they, they actually kind of had an idea of where the dream was heading. But that perhaps they didn't want to share it with Pharaoh because it, perhaps they understood that this was some sort of famine that was coming up. But they didn't want to share it with Pharaoh because any sort of extreme famine would mean that their primary irrigation, the flooding of the Nile, would have failed. And that wouldn't have looked too good for their god of the Nile named Happy, who the Egyptians believed were responsible for the Nile's annual flooding. So they may be looking at this dream with some understanding that it's pointing to a failure of their god of the Nile and just decide to keep quiet. But either way, Pharaoh found no answer in the wisdom of the culture, and he was left troubled in searching for answers I want you to notice when Pharaoh is relaying the dream uh, to Joseph, behold in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile seven cows plump and attractive came up out of the Nile, they were feeding in the reed grass this would have been a common sight in Egypt Uh, seven other cows, this would have not been a common sight, seven other cows come up after them, poor and very ugly, and I just want you to notice how long he spends describing the, the not so good parts Seven other cows come up after them poor very ugly and thin such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt and the thin ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows but when they had eaten them no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as at the beginning then I awoke And then he has the the dream of the seven ears growing on one stalk that's eaten by the withered and blighted. Again, here he says they're withered and blighted by the east wind, and these thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told the magicians, but there's just no one who can explain it to me. Which I think is Pharaoh's way of saying, here's the worst part of it all. The dreams, those are bad. But the worst part of it all, and you can you can, you can just sense the the sort of the sort of depression, the sort of the sort of desperation deepen as he says. And on top of all this bad stuff, I see. I told it to my magicians. I told it to what our culture said had all the answers, and they couldn't interpret it to me. Couldn't explain it. And Joseph again fires right at him. God, the true God, has revealed what he's going to do. And basically, here's the idea. There's going to be seven abnormally fruitful years of harvest, followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph says in verse 32, if you want to know why there was two dreams, it says the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Yeah, so this is, this is going to happen. There's no way around this. God is letting you know that it's coming quick and it's coming for sure. And so this whole, this whole, this whole idea, this all, all, all the way through, verse 25, is, Joseph says, God is revealed to Pharaoh. Verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Then again, as we just read in verse 32, it's fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. You've got famine coming. Things are going to get really bad here in a few years. Famine, 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 famine. It's going to happen. And then in verse 33 through 36, very interesting, Joseph answers a question that Pharaoh didn't even ask. So he says, he, he interprets the dream, and then he says in verse 33, so now, therefore... And that's, whenever God reveals something to us, it's a call to action. And in this story, he, he's letting them know that there's going to be a famine. And Joseph realized this is a call to action. When God tells us something's coming, that is a call to action. And so Joseph kind of answers the question, again, Pharaoh didn't ask, what now? And Joseph tells him, hire a wise and discerning man, basically an economist, And basically the idea is, since everybody is going to have a super abundance of prosperity for the next seven years, and then after that there's going to be seven years of famine that threatens to wipe out not only the Egyptians but the world around us, let's go ahead and charge a 20% tax on the food during that super abundant years and store up that food around the, the nation in different cities so that when the food runs out, Egypt doesn't die, and neither does everybody else around us. Joseph is using his experiences to serve others. It's just as if each time we see Joseph, he's, he's got more and more influence. He's growing more and more in understanding. He's growing more and more in his understanding of Egyptian culture. And through his experience, he becomes this economic genius by God's grace. It reminds me that our gifts are for God's glory and the good of others. First Peter chapter four, verse ten. That's what Joseph is using here. He's using his gifts for the good of others. First Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and belong, dominion, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you remember that question I asked at the beginning? What do you, ancient Egyptian magicians and present-day local malls have in common? They both claim to have the answer to life's problems—a message of wisdom and rescue and satisfaction. But when it comes to the true things of God, they both let you down and leave you doomed for hell. You say, "Why am I talking about a local mall?" It's just what I picked. I picked a hundred, could have picked a hundred things, probably. Like TV, could have sports, could have a lot of things that our culture offers us for rescue and wisdom and satisfaction. But take the shops at the mall, loaded with three D icons in the front window. They've made it clear to us: we have failed. We don't look like the picture in the window. We aren't living the good life. So that shop beckons us to enter. They've shown us our need and they've told us that inside is redemption and the good life awaits. Every store showing us that when it comes down to what the culture values, you don't have it. You don't look the way you should look in our culture. You don't have the clothes, the shoes, the phone that our culture says you should have. In our culture yes, even through shopping malls, is offering us rescue. If you want to be accepted and welcomed, and you want to look a certain way, then come to us. We've got it all. We have your rescue. We have your redemption. Inside, the good life awaits. The secret that Victoria and every other shop in the mall holds is that they're really after your heart. They offer a wisdom by which to live your life, yet like Pharaoh, they fail us. The same stores that offer hope in one moment tells us to throw away all that they've provided for us and buy the new version. And then there's social media. Hidden behind the notification bell is the key to happiness. Someone has liked your photo. Someone has reached out. Someone has posted an update. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok tell us that behind the screen of those notifications is a life of redemption and acceptance. Thankfully, the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the malls. I'll destroy the wisdom of sports and of money and of sex and of everything else. I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where, there is, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Culture claims to offer you salvation in a thousand different ways, yet every one to five years they're telling you to throw it all away and buy more stuff. And God turns the wisdom of the mall into a pile of trash, and says to us, "The cross has destroyed any other hope of salvation. Jesus alone can save." <coughs> Yet there's a third one. As we close this out, the third fake rescuer. Number one is self. Number two is culture, and number three is prosperity. We now. So Joseph, and this is, and this is. Uh, let's look at verse four, uh, 41. Look at verse 41. Where Joseph, uh, Pharaoh, says to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And he gets all this stuff. I notice how, what Joseph's thinking is on this. Look down to verse 51, 52, where Joseph names his children. Pharaoh says, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Here's all this stuff. Joseph says, in the name of his son, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. My fruitfulness does not come from prosperity, it comes from God. Pharaoh, as we mentioned earlier, recognized the spirit of the gods is in Joseph. And again, it's tainted with polytheism. He's just assuming there's some god out there that has some influence in this guy's life. Yet he knows, or he doesn't know, he's speaking better than he knows. And Pharaoh gives Joseph one of the largest and quickest promotions in world history. And Joseph is now riding second chariot. ...behind Pharaoh himself. It's kind of verses 43. And he made him ride in his second chariot. This guy's like top of the line. Top influence. Second only to Pharaoh. And then notice... uh, ...verse 46. uh, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh... ...and went through all the land of Egypt... Uh, And actually, if you back up to verse uh, 45, that's what I wanted there. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paniah, which we don't really know the interpretation to that. And he gave him in marriage, so he got a new name, a new wife, a new title. He's got all these things. And in verse 46, it says he's now 30 years old. Do you remember how old he was when this all started? He was 17 Back in chapter 37, this whole story began when he was 17, now he's 30. And there's still nine, we're, still nine years, we're still nine years away, even after this chapter. We're, I mean, we're still nine years away from the climax of, or not after this chapter, after these events, we're still nine years away from the climax where his brothers come and there's this big, you know, the big scenes with him and his brothers. So it's going to be 20 plus years, 20 plus years before Joseph realizes the fruit of his suffering Reminds me of Abraham. He waited 20 plus years between God's promise and the fulfillment. The first promise in Genesis chapter 12. Jacob waited around that 20 year mark as he worked for Laban. And Joseph has two sons. And I think the naming of his two sons in chapter 41 is key here. He named one Manasseh, verse 51, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship of my father's house. And then the other one, Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Fruitful. He's made me fruitful. God has made me fruitful. This stuff hasn't rescued me. Joseph has more prosperity than he could possibly imagine, yet it does not have its grip on him. He didn't give credit for the rescue to the wisdom of self, the wisdom of culture, or Pharaoh's riches. Hebrews 11 helps us understand that what Joseph's mind really was set on—that it wasn't set on riches, but his relationship with God. This is one of the most—I odd, I think this is one of the most odd things in the Bible. First, read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. Maybe not—that's that's probably way overstating it. Probably one of the most odd things in the Bible. But notice what it says here: by faith Joseph, and we we can fill in a hundred things here, could not we? Like, said no to Potiphar's wife, or like, trusted God's wisdom when he was talking with Pharaoh, forgave his brothers? No, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, this is the only thing mentioned about Joseph in Hebrews 11. At the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So for the writer of Hebrews, this is what Joseph should be known for. And I think it's there was something far greater than the riches of Egypt that Joseph was looking towards. He was looking towards the riches and kindness and grace of God. Found in relationship with him. Prosperity is a false rescuer. It gives us the illusion that we're safe. It gives us the illusion that we've done it ourselves. It gives us the illusion that we don't need anything else. But Joseph said, when I die, Egypt's behind me, and we're heading towards the blessings and promises of God. And in all of that, he says, God has made me fruitful. It wasn't Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't make me fruitful. My job as Egyptian economist didn't make me fruitful. It was God. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, says that the church has become more akin to the world through the cult of personal happiness. He states, the nature of happiness has changed over the years to being akin to an inner sense of psychological well-being. We already talked about that at the beginning. He goes, once we start thinking of happiness in those terms, the vision of the Christian life laid out in Paul's letters, particularly 2 Corinthians, becomes incomprehensible. We may not all be explicitly committed to the prosperity gospel, but many of us think of divine blessing in terms of our individual happiness. That is a result of the psychological therapeutic culture seeping into our Christianity. Joseph's story is not a series of unfortunate events until life finally gets easy. It's not a story of a man down it's not a story of a man down on his luck scraping for new opportunities when he finally breaks free from the curse of bad luck and lives happily ever after. The story of Joseph is a story of God appointed suffering meant for God's glory and the good of Joseph and others. To put it another way, it's a story of God working all things together for good. The sin, the sorrows, the anguish, the pain, the injustice, the untruth. All for God's glory and the good of others. Yet Genesis chapter 41 is a microcosm of God's plan for Israel and for the whole world. Look at the end of verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, so this is after the seven years of blessing. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Through one man, God would provide to a hungry world. That's who Jesus is. John 6 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yourself, will leave you thirsty. This culture and the wisdom therein will leave you thirsty and hungry. Prosperity will leave you thirsty and hungry. And the people eventually go through the prosperity and they're come and they're hungry and they're crying out to Pharaoh for bread, but bread was found in the one that God had chosen. And for us, that's a microcosm. That's a pointer right to Jesus. We hunger and we thirst for something that satisfies, for something that's real, for something that's dependable. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God shut off the food so that all would have to go to the one place God provided food. Who do you cry out to for bread? What are you going to for rescue, for hope, for joy, for truth in your life? Perhaps God in your life has shut off the food. You're beginning to realize that self, that culture, that prosperity are empty satisfiers. They're fake rescuers. God has provided the bread of life, Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of those who believe so that anyone who does believe in him will never hunger for eternal rescue, eternal hope, eternal joy, eternal life again. He is the bread of life. Turn from the fake and come to the genuine. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we run to those fake rescuers, those untrustworthy, undependable, totally untrue saviors that so often get our dependence, they get our trust, they get our hope, they get our very hearts. And we read this and we realize that in many ways we are not Joseph When people start patting us on the back and telling us how good we are and they start believing in our own potential, our own skills, we're so quick to say, yeah, I can do it. It's me. I've got what it takes in and of myself. Our culture is begging us to go and try to find some sort of true self within us. Lord, we know it's a fake rescuer because many times we never face the reality that The true us is truthfully sinful, truly sinful, in need of a rescue from the Lord Jesus. Lord, we so often listen to our culture that says, I've got your redemption right here, right behind this entrance to the shopping mall, right behind this sports game, right behind this money, right behind this notification on Facebook. Lord, help us to look to the cross, the cross that shamed the wisdom of the world. And Lord, help us not to rest in prosperity, some version of psychological happiness that is we call the good life, but to always be happy in our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.